Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. On this week's episode, we're sharing another event from the 54th New York Film Festival last month. This year, we partnered with the Writers Guild of America East to present a panel discussion on the art of screenwriting. The panelists included Rebecca Miller, who wrote and directed last year's official selection, Maggie's Plan, Jean-Christophe Castelli, the writer of Ang Lee's new film, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, and Mike Mills, the writer-director of Beginners and the forthcoming 20th Century Women. The evening was moderated by WGAE President Michael Winship. Our screenwriters panel was a part of our NYFF Live series of free talks, which are sponsored by HBO. Let's go to that now. So I just want to start out because, um, Rebecca, your film was here last year. Uh, The other two films people haven't really had a chance to see yet. So I was wondering, given that this is about indelible characters, if you could each briefly tell us a little bit about your movie and who the indelible main characters are. Maggie's Plan is about... um, It's set in academia here in New York City, and it's about a young woman who um, falls in love with an unhappily, apparently married man, and he... Uh, they take up together and start a new family and she realizes that she's not anymore in love with him and starts to scheme to get him back together with his ex-wife. And so, the, and the main characters um, are played by Greta Gerwig and Julianne Moore and Ethan Hawke. And so it's really a classic um, comedy of remarriage, really. Um, uh, not to give anything away. But, um, and, you know, uh, the challenge with this was it was a film that was very much lifted and elevated and kind of um, propelled by language and, and at the same time to make it visual and so on and to make the characters believable, even though they were, um, the, the, the plot itself was strangely believable but really kind of almost surreally strange, I mean, in a way. It, was, it, was some, it happened somewhere in this world, I'm sure. But um, anyway, so th- those... Great. Yes. Um, Billy Lynn's uh, Long Halftime Walk is uh, uh, based actually on a novel by uh, this writer, Ben Fountain, uh, which is a great novel, by the way. So, uh, you know, definitely, if you see the movie, you could still read the novel. It's really, it's a really excellent uh, piece of writing. Um, and it's about a group of uh, young soldiers who are in Iraq, and, and they're sort of in, a, in it's, it's right before the war starts getting really ugly, uh, right before Fallujah, and they, uh, they basically have this kind of skirmish and sort of come out heroes, and so they're sort of sent on this tour, they're sent back to America on this tour, which culminates in uh, being in the halftime show of the Dallas Cowboys uh, uh, Thanksgiving game, and then right after that, they're back to Iraq. So, um, so it's basically, the movie is, is kind of about the disconnect between what soldiers do, how they see themselves, and, and how civilians, you know, how the rest of us see what they do, and how we project, uh, what we project on themselves. And it's, it's really mostly from the point of view of the main character, Billy Lynn, who's, uh, uh, you know, who's a young Texan, um, is he 19 or 20? I'm spacing out now. But anyway, he's, uh, he's basically, it, 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 the book is, is really mostly inside his head. 
And so that was obviously one of the biggest challenges was to kind of preserve that sense of, um, you know, subjectivity and, and viewpoint, but still, you know, open it up into a film. And, and it's him kind of observing and, and, and digesting things. And, and also, um, you know, given that they've just come from the battlefield with very little transition, they're all kind of primed up and, and still keyed up. And so all the things that we take for granted, you know, just being in a large football stadium with cheering fans, you know, can be incredibly uh, threatening and flashback inducing, which is kind of what happens basically. So uh, there's a big flashback. <laughs> the war. Um, so my film, 20th Century Woman, Gosh, I hate summarizing my film. It's so hard. Um, um, so it's, a, it's set in 1979, and it's a woman who's in her 50s who's played by Annette Benning, who's a single mom raising a punk rock skateboarding teenager. And um, she's, uh, she was 40 when she had him, so there's this generation gap between the two of them. And uh, the late 70s is sort of presented as this moment of transition and crisis that, that she's feeling acutely. And so she um, recruits Greta Gerwig right out of your movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, she We're recruits. Greta Gerwig <laughs> panel here. She recruits uh, a 25-year-old played by 28-year-old played by Greta and a 17-year-old played by Elle Fanning as sort of very unlikely people to help her raise the boy. And it's sort of the story of a boy who, a teenage boy who figures out life and men and women only through women or mostly through women. So, um, Jean-Christophe, you wrote an adaptation, and the other two wrote uh, original screenplays, but let me start for all three of you. I should just say that my screenplay was adapted from from an unfinished novel, so there there was a center of it. So let me ask you you all the chicken and the egg uh, question, which is which comes first, the story idea and plot, or an indelible character you're dying to write about, or does it vary? Well, for me, uh, always character has come first. In this case, I had a, um, the nugget of the scenario was what was given to me mainly. And, and the, the three characters were there, but they were quite different in some ways, except for Georgette was quite similar to what the, is in the book. So there were, I, 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 I spun out from, from a hook, which I'd never done before. I, in the past, what I do is I just sort of like start spinning characters and I draw my characters and I just sort of follow them around and I just keep writing and writing and writing and gradually they start to accrue some sort of destiny and then I start to think okay what do I want my plot to be and stuff like that but usually I I start with character. Uh, Yeah my last two movies are all character um, beginners is based very much on my real father and then sort of a quasi me and his predicament of coming out of the closet after my mom passed away when he was 75 and all that that brought into our world. Um, and then this was based on my mom. Um, so Annette Benning's plane. So my mom was born in the 20s, depressionary kid, wanted to be a pilot in World War II. If you're wondering what she's like, just imagine Bogart and Amelia Earhart sort of put together. <laughs> uh, but then she's stuck in the 70s trying to raise me, and she's like a fish out of water, historically speaking, and she's sort of a proto-feminist, very strong, very unlikely, sort of soft, butch, straight woman trying to get through life. Um, and so it started with her and her worldview, and, and what is it like to be her then trying to do with me? 
And then the Greta character, the Abby character, is based partially on my sister who um, um, came to New York, went to Parsons in the 70s, had sort of a you know, wonderful radicalization of herself and her sexuality and her womanhood um, only to find out she had cervical cancer and have to return home and sort of start all over and everything turned out fine. Mm -hmm. um, but um, those two women were sort of the center for me and then the L character was a, sort of an amalgamation of all these women I did know, my memories of all these young women I knew. Um, and then I worked on that character by interviewing a whole bunch of women who were that age in 79 and doing those kinds of things in 79. So my three characters are sort of based on, they're all based on real people and real memories and I was trying as hard as I could to somehow try to capture that even though that's kind of an impossible game. And then plot came last as mm. just a way to hold these portraits together. Right. And Jean-Christophe, you, you, you had a novel in hand. You, had an, you were doing an adaptation. Did you come at it via the characterizations first or, or, or dealing with the storyline? Um, well, Billy Lynn doesn't, it's not a very plot-driven movie because mm -hmm. it's, it's mostly just, you know, what happens during the day when they're at this football game and then these kind of flashbacks. Um, so I think it, it was character-driven in that sense. Um, the, the challenge with Billy Lynn was uh, that the main character, Billy Lynn, in, in the novel, again, is, is really the filter through which everything comes, but there's a kind of double quality to him in the novel. Uh, he's both uh, a fairly naive, kind of open, but starting to become aware of the world uh, Texas teenager, but at the same time, he's also a little bit of a mouthpiece for the author, and so a lot of his observations are, um, and I'm not saying this is actually a flaw, I think it's a sort of deliberate kind of double focus, but some of his observations are actually a lot more sophisticated and linguistically rich than you would expect from, you know, somebody who was basically a, a teenage, you know, fuck up in, in Texas. And so I think one of the challenges was to kind of separate that and get back to just Billy Lynn as, as a person, uh, as a point of view, and kind of, you know, call away some of that sort of authorial uh, feel to the main character. So that was kind of the main, the main thing. And then I, I think a lot of the point of view of the character is really more the director's work than my work. Uh, you know, it's just how it's, how it's shot and, and so forth. So, um, you know, but in any case, that was, the adaptation process was a little bit about filtering away, you know, the, the original text and, and trying to find, you know, the character underneath. Do you all find that, I know this has happened to me and to other colleagues, that as you're creating something like this, do, do new characters suddenly come out of the woodwork and surprise you? Do new characters appear or do you have to, or do you have definitely. to cut characters? Yeah, yeah definitely. Mm -hmm. For, I mean, it happens to me that people sort of show up and you have to deal with them. There was a character th of the pickle man in my film mm -hmm. that um, kind of suddenly raised his head. There he was. And, it, and he was, a lot of the characters in, in that I, the extra characters were actually in this particular film in Maggie's plan was, um, came from, people that I knew in college. So 
the pickle guy was somebody I actually went to college with, and you know Tony is very much my best friend, and the, so there are, I, I, I very much really did model these characters on people that I knew, mm -hmm. some of them. I, I think I, I, I had a sort of a little bit of a different experience because I was essentially, I mean, I, I had a novel to work with, but I was essentially writing about characters and experiences that, that had uh, very little to do with me. Uh, you know, uh, since I haven't gone to war, I didn't grow up in Texas, I haven't been in the army. So, so it was kind of a different experience in that, in that respect. Uh, you know, I wasn't uh, drawing on uh, personal experience. I was, I was trying to sort of make a, you know, an imaginative leap and an empathic leap uh, into the characters, but uh, you know, it, it just interests me actually because it, it sort of uh, uh, all, all this talk lately, the sort of brouhaha about cultural appropriation, mm -hmm. um, you know, which is mostly, I guess, uh, directed towards you know uh, minority experiences, perhaps I don't know, but um, but you know, in the sense of of also just veterans and and soldiers, you know. What right do I have to write about them? I don't know. I mean, the, the thing is, the, the writer of the novel, Ben Fountain, wasn't in the army either, and he did an absolutely amazing job. So, mm -hmm. so that was certainly part of the encouragement. Uh, you did add, a, I, I believe you did add an Asian-American soldier, right? So um, yeah, yeah, we added yeah. an Asian-American soldier um, who's actually played by Ang Lee's son, who's, who's, huh. a, who's a really good actor. Uh, and he... Uh, um, so yeah, so there was an added character uh, there. So that was that was, uh, you know, it was it was it, it, it's sort of the, the the other soldiers around Billy Lynn are kind of a, a Greek chorus. So that's a whole other sort of character creation where you're really dealing with uh, a group of characters and and a kind of, you know, each of them has a sort of recognizable tag and and a kind of interplay with each other. Uh, it's it's a, it's a little bit more stylized and less. You know, in depth, an individual uh, in that respect, but mm -hmm. but they're kind of the commentators on what's going on. Um, I I didn't so much have characters pop up as characters that really needed to go. Um, yeah, that was my next question. Uh, and each one was like a, when you asked that question, I never really thought of that before. But uh, beginners, I had a therapist that I wanted Tilda Swinton to play, and I was writing just because I was like like all of us in love with Tilda, and who wouldn't want her in your movie? And it took me months to realize, like, oh, this is a problem. And once I took it out, other things became clear. And then the 20th century woman, there was a father who was screwing me up forever. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't took me a long time to figure out that that really is the um, problem in my script. That's um, once I released that, it opened up a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you write with specific performers in mind? I mean, are you writing, like, were you writing with Greta? I wasn't writing with Greta. What I do is, I usually I follow this rule, is that I don't allow myself to do that because, you know, people might not want to do it or they might be not available, and then it's very heartbreaking. Sure. I, I recently broke my rule, and thank God the person wanted to do it, but usually I don't do that. But what I do do is once I cast it, I rewrite, you know, sort of for that person so that that becomes the, the, the last phase of, of writing. Yeah, very similar. I or if I, I don't know if you do this, like if sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, that person, and uh, I'm writing, I'll just write the worst version of that person's acting, you know? <laughs> and uh, so I really had to stop, and it helps me if I just cleanse myself of anybody. And then, as you said, you just, you can't assume you're gonna get anyone in your movie, so why put yourself through the, the heartbreak of that? And then often I'm dealing with real people, so I'm dealing with this weird mongrel 
person in my head that sometimes looks like my mom or whoever and sometimes is another shape, but it helps me if I keep them in that direction. And then always casting is a giving up. I mean, like That's, when you yeah, cast, you let go. And mm -hmm. in a sense, that is a rewriting. I, I mean, I think of all the stages as rewriting. So like you write the screenplay, then you cast it, you kind of rewrite it. By casting it, you're rewriting it because, you, because usually you haven't written exactly for that person in mind. You've written perhaps with somebody you knew or whatever, and that you have to let go. And then you go and then you edit, and that's a form of rewriting because you're reconstructing it and reshaping it and so on. So the process of writing, I think, continues. You know. Do you ever feel as though you have to snap the performer back into something that's a closer approximation of your, the character you, or do you roll with it and, and see what happens? I don't, I don't understand. I'm so, well, if, if a performer is not achieving the characterization that you had hoped right would do you try and knock them back into it or do you do you let them roll yeah and, i mean i you know i think it's better to do a lot of that work before you get right. start, get on set and honestly it's like being in a war and mm. starting to kind of finesse the frosting on a cake or something it's just too late but but that, that's not to say that you can't direct on set but i don't think you're making a character on set like a character is created right. in, con you know, it's you, the script and the actors all come together and a character is created. And hopefully you both know who that person is before you start shooting and that's important, like that you know the voice and you know who it is and stuff. Um, I think you can kind of like magnetically pull people one direction or another and try different t ways of right. doing, of being that one person. But the person, if they're good, they've made that person and it's not gonna, that's not gonna change. Um, I mean, I'm not, I wasn't the director of Billy Lynn, so I didn't um, have, I, I, I wasn't really involved in the direct casting, but uh, for one of the characters, for example, there's a, the owner of the football team, which is based on the Dallas Cowboys, so it's not called that in the movie, uh, is this guy named Norm, and it's based on uh, Jerry Jones, uh, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys. So it's this kind of very blowhard, kind of Texan, uh, you know, professional team owner. And um, I felt that uh, he just kind of came on a little too strong on the page, uh, or rather he would come on too strong in, the, uh, in, in, in a sort of screen adaptation. So I cast him in my head as, as Jeff Bridges. Uh, you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to rewrite this character a little bit as Jeff Bridges, you know, kind of uh, laid back, uh, you know, uh, still with a hard edge, but it will be even more, w when the sort of betrayal at the end happens, it'll be actually more powerful because you won't really expect to be screwed over by, by Jeff Bridges. And then it turns out actually that um, Steve Martin ended up getting the part. He was originally offered another part, but he, when he read the script, he said, I want to be Norm. And Steve Martin is actually from Texas, so he could, he could actually do it really well. But uh, when he kind of got to be Norm, he sort of became more like Jerry Jones again. So I guess it, you know, mm. the characters can kind of go mm. back and forth uh, depending on casting. But, but it, you know, I did cast it in my head as a, as a sort of device to, you know, and, and, and actually I think Ang was, for a while, he was like, oh yeah, Jeff Bridges, Jeff Bridges, but it ended up not being, not right. happening, so. Mike, you alluded to this earlier, the, the fact that in, in your screenplay you're writing for three different generations of women, really. So that must have been a challenge in many ways. And, mm -hmm. and uh, Talk about cultural appropriation. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
Um, can I go to at the sure. last question oh, real quick, though? Because yeah. it's really interesting to me. I, I totally agree that you're trying to infect the actor with what you've written and let them take it and let them run with it and have them become the author. And it's their body and soul and timing and, and everything anyway. So it is them. And especially coming from doing like really personal things, I'm always afraid that the actor is going to feel like it's too, you know precious or or uh, a burden or something. So I give them a lot of information from my these characters' real lives, but it's always like just take what works for you and run with it. And I'm always and maybe I've just been lucky, but I feel like my job as a director, part of my writer directorness, is always like go run. What is your instincts? What would you think? Or if they ask me a question, I always try to answer. Well, what what you know? What does your instinct say? What do you think? Because sometimes it'll come to me like, well, you know, it's your mom. And it's like, well, no, not really. Like, you're her now. Or what would you do? And that's very fun and exciting and uh, um, sort of like a delicious, weird collaboration where you do actually feel powerful as a writer because it kind of takes flight, you know? I mean, it gets out of your hands. And one of my favorite things is uh, in prep, I'll interview them as the character a little bit. And um, Al Fanning just somehow just knew everything that Julie was thinking and had amazing answers from her girl perspective, from her 17-year-old woman perspective. So this kind of gets to your next question. Yeah. Um, and I was very happy to incorporate that and go back and rewrite, you know, based on these stuff, meetings I had with her. Um, and so, yeah, as a cisgendered, straight, white male, um, I'm, the last thing I want to be is a tourist. Uh, I have my mom's memories that I'm working from. I have a net that I'm relying on a lot. Um, with Abby's character, um, I, you know, it's based on my sister. I had Greta talk to my sister, interview my sister. One of my favorite parts of the script, Greta wrote based on an interview with my sister um, that they were talking about things, sex and stuff that I don't think my sister would talk to me about as her oh. little brother, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was like, wow. I got to see a part of Meg that I just, that Greta unleashed, you know, mm -hmm. and that was very exciting. And like I said, Elle's, having Elle's voice in there gave me a little backup, but I'm always trying to be conscious of the limitations of my position and that I can't, I don't know what that experience is to be a 55-year-old woman and a 28-year-old woman. Right. And, and I don't know what it's like to be grow up during the Depression. And, and so I bumped into that a lot. I had a real philosophical problem in my script for a year or so. Um, and, and then it just kind of slowly became, slowly found a way to make that part of the script, that the kid's trying to understand the women, but there's only so far he can go. He desperately wants to be close to them, and he thinks he knows them, but they, there's only so far that he can go. Well, you both are, I mean, Jean and, and, and Mike, you're both writing in period, really. I mean, you're writing in 2004, yeah, basically, yeah. and you're writing in 1979. How does that impact your, your writing of the characters in terms of dealing with the context of the times they live in? Well, uh, I, I think actually that's really important. Um, uh, my first, uh, the first time I worked with Ang Lee, um, uh, I worked on the ice storm and, and um, I was sort of put in charge of, in fact, all the cultural details of the ice storm and, and the sort of cultural period research, both for Aang and for the actors and, uh, and, and eventually for, you know, other, uh, other crew members as well. And, um, and that was a really important 
important part of the character formation. It didn't really affect the writing of the script per se, but um, what I ended up doing was, was doing this very sort of thick uh, book, uh, this thick notebook. Uh, the ice storm is set in, uh, on a very specific date in, oh my, spacing out now, 75? Anyway, 74, 75. Um, and so in that book, I put in uh, the TV guide from that week. I put in that uh, month's issue of Mad Magazine. I put in advertisements from all sorts of different magazines. And uh, I made packs for all the actors with, you know, a vintage magazine that their character might read, uh, a book, uh, you know, other, other materials like that. And, uh, and you know, it, it just got everybody kind of excited and, 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 and sort of jazzed up about uh, kind of entering into the period. So I, th I think that was a really good part of the process. With Billy Lynn, it wasn't quite as much distant. Um, I think that m was more about really, uh, you know, talking again about, um, you know, I guess being, um, recognizing one's limitations as a writer when you're writing about experiences or, or through people that, that, that are, are very different from you. Um, we certainly, you know, we used uh, a military advisor who was a sort of great reality check, and, and that was particularly important, not only for the battle scenes, uh, which obviously I would know the first thing about how y you would, uh, you know, deal with Iraqi insurgents or whatever, but also because this is a group of soldiers, they have a certain corporate identity as well as a personal identity. And the corporate identity is very much tied into their being soldiers and the lingo and so on. So, so working, with, uh, working with the advisor was, was, was great on that. You you know. put, the, put the cast through boot camp too, right? And, and yeah, yeah, and the, yeah. the cast went through an actual boot camp experience. I mean, compressed into what, I think three weeks maybe, or mm -hmm. I forget. But anyway, it was pretty traumatic for them, I think. So, uh, but it, it definitely got them into character. Uh, mm -hmm. and the most <laughs> direct way possible. <laughs> Rebecca, what about cultural context with your characters? Is that an important aspect of your? Well, um, one of the characters in Maggie's plan um, is uh, Danish. Uh, that's uh, Julianne Moore's Morris, character. Yeah. And my mother was an uh, Austrian woman who really was sort of, l grew up also in France, so she had a very strange accent. So uh, European women are, I, I, knew, I know that, point of view very, very well, and, 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 and it's the kind of otherness and the kind of way of d doing, I just had a feeling she should be European, and originally the character was French, and we considered making her American, but we decided on Danish because it was, had the least baggage of any accent. I mean, we don't, haven't seen that many Danes <laughs> <laughs> recently, I don't know. And also she was very funny. It was an accent she could, she could do very funny, but, um, so I was interested in the way that she looked at infidelity in particular, the idea that this is a woman who looks at infidelity in a very light, a kind of a light way intellectually, but actually she's devastated by it. So it's mm. that sort of the difference between the way she looks at what she th should think about infidelity versus you know, how she really feels, because she's a, she's a fictive critical anthropologist, which they all are um, in my movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and in fact, fictocritical anthropology was something which I kind of fell on because my best friend is an academic and she said these people feel, you know, seem like fictocritical anthropologists when she read the first draft of the screenplay. And then I started to look into what that was. And it's, ex you know, oddly it exists and it's very, it's an actually really a, a, a very interesting field. And um, it had, a, I mean, I found a gold mine of material. And so sort of a lot of the kind of way that they, 
look at things and the way that they construct their own writing, these people, is informed by that, mm. by, by that discipline. What was the question again? Well, that was so it interesting. Was about culture, about other cultures and, research and other the and the the period stuff. So for me, like '79, I'm born in '66. It's relatively f right. I'm fluent in it, I guess. Um, the thing that was funny was that my mom, again, born in '25. I don't know if anybody here knows people born in that generation. They don't talk about themselves or their feelings or their frustrations or their doubts. So when that's your main character, you're totally screwed, especially if you're <laughs> her son and you just and she's. Ex especially cryptic to you. So I started um, watching a lot of the movies I knew she watched, and I knew she loved Bogart, and I, so I started watching a lot of movies from the 30s and 40s, and my mom was a very wise, cracking, sort of um, oof, like anti-authoritarian, slightly socialist, always loves the underdog, uh, very inclusive, um, very not typical feminine or mother, and it, there's a lot of women like that in all those films. So it was that period that I had to sort of study mm and learn from, and, and it really helped. And I, w I would be writing a scene, and I'd be like, ah, I don't know what she's supposed to do or say. And I'd be like, what would Bogart do, okay? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'd be like, fuck, that reminds me of my mom so much. So it was really interesting. I learned a lot about my mom. Huh. Uh, it, was, it was odd. Okay. Hi, good evening. Thanks so much for coming today. Um, could you shed some light into how much time, what's the process into um, before you start writing? What is it like? How much time do you spend? What, what is it like? Thank you. You mean like before you start writing Final Draft? What do you mean? Um, so l I'm guessing uh, you have an idea for a script. Uh, before you start writing the actual dialogue, what's your process like on, before you start actually you know, confidently writing? Thank you. I want to hear your answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've had different processes for every movie. You know, th th um, we, we spoke about a movie called Ballad of Jack and Rose, which is a film that, that w you know, built up in me for a long, long time. And that was very much based on my own, uh, on, on an emotional preoccupation I had growing up that my father was going to die. And I was obsessed with the idea of his death. And I kind of pre-mourned him for years. And so it's sort of about the idea of pre-mourning, you know, which is a kind of, but then that then I so I sort of had that in my head and then I started thinking I wanted him then I had also been fascinated always by the commune by communes in the 60s because I had an older brother who's almost 20 years older than me who was in a, or 16 years older than me who lived in a commune so I started researching communes and then I sort of was really interested in the play The Tempest because of the way that the relationship between the father and daughter and they live on an island and I started to kind of like think okay The Tempest and then this sort of commune and then and then this idea of this girl who's already mourning her father who then has to be of course sick and so then he became sick and so it was all it was like a it was like I was sort of it was like all these elements started to come together and then also I had before Jack and Rose I'd made a movie called Angela in which there were two little girls sort of left at the end of the movie and you know, one of them died and there was only a father and a little girl and in my head it was the father and the little girl who's now 16. Now, of course, there, it's not really a sequel, but in my head, I was thought, well, what if these two are left? What happens there? He's overprotective of her. He can't let her really grow up. He's like, you know, they're there. And so it was kind of like math. It's like you, you start to add and add and add. And, and, and it's almost like, you know, a theorem develops. And you, then you have to prove it. And, the, and the, in a way, the proof is the screenplay. That there's some kind of like, that's how that one, but that, and that, that was just interesting because that accrued over, over really quite a number of years. Um, I, I can just 
talk briefly also about, uh, I mean, this is kind of a script that's still in development, but um, um, one of the things, um, uh, this is a script that's, that's sort of about a, a historical uh, sports rivalry, and, you know, I mean, it's interesting in itself, but one, one of the challenges was also just, you know, how, how do we sort of get into this story? And uh, so one of the things uh, that we did was, was actually to find a kind of archetypal narrative that would somehow echo uh, with this story. Um, in, in this case, it was, it was a biblical narrative. So, so sometimes I think something that can be also interesting in, in the process, and I think that's probably what you did with The Tempest also, is to take something that's kind of larger than the story or other than the story, uh, something that also the audience might be familiar with, you know, already, and and use that as, as one point of entry. I think that that can be a very, you know, good tool for developing characters and developing, um, you know, and, and their relationship. Uh, well, the last two things I did, I did the same way, which I think is totally unadvisable. <laughs> and I didn't want it to be like a normal script, so I just started with cards, like five or seven cards, and just wrote down anything and tried to be as free as I could. And with both these, I'm dealing with memory, so if I can remember a little nugget and just try to collect as many nuggets as I can. And then I'm dealing with culture with both of them. And so I'm trying to study and, and finding little things that stick out to me as, as, oh, a good door to go through. Uh, and I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I'm going to kind of invite chaos. I, I'm invited to be as broad as possible. Um, and um, it's really unadvisable because I could do that for six months to a year, which I do. And then I kind of start holding it together. And, and then like, what, is it, what do all these pieces potentially mean together? And about three quarters of those pieces go into the trash and the, that quarter becomes the basis of the script. Uh, thank you all for doing this. Um, I know that actors have toolboxes defining their character, you know, what music the character might like, uh, just finding those personal things that helps them find in themselves how to relate to the character. So I know that, Rebecca, you are a painter, and visual is very, very important to you. And Mike, I suspect that music has a lot in your life has a lot of meaning. So I wondered in the, writing, in the, in the process of writing or pre-writing, do any of these other creative parts of yourself um, come into play to get you in front of the, the, the computer or the typewriter to begin and then help you through those dry periods as you're going along in terms of the story? Um, for me, definitely, like, uh, so that the five by seven boxes that I just described, a lot of them are just pictures of things, or now it's like a computer file. With, and then a character will get like a folder and just dump in things that have maybe no relation, maybe relation, or just following my instincts. This last movie, 20th Century Woman, is a lot about music and people's sort of finding themselves or finding a way to have their feelings through music, which was very much my story with punk rock. And so uh, um, they all had music, and music was the one of the first things that I shared with all the actors. And we started, the best thing we did, we have two weeks of prep, and we started having like dance parties every morning, first thing, whoever's there. And they all worked their way into the movie. They weren't in the script, but there's a lot of dancing in the movie, and most of it wasn't there. It was just like a prep thing, I thought. Um, so yeah, uh, there's a lot of nonverbal stuff for me. 
similarly, um, I, I do a lot of drawing of my characters. I usually figure out what I think that they look like. Of course, the casting process, you, you, know, be, be, you have to let go of some of that. But for me, like, de developing who they are is, was, is partly drawing, partly painting, because the color is really important to me. So like what you know, people are wearing, what color their walls are, all those things are meaningful to me and, and kind of like are there with language. Um, but they predate, yeah, they come sort of before language and alongside of it, too. You know, so it's kind of like an it's all part of the same process, but it would. There's a lot of that in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I would say. I mean, it didn't apply so much with uh, Billy Lynn, but for example, Life of Pi, which I did not write. I was uh, a producer on the film and uh, I kind of did this story editing. But um, music uh, ended up being very important. Uh, you know, it was just kind of an interesting way into. Uh, Indian culture and, and the culture of the main character of Pi. And um, when I traveled in India, um, you know, I got really sort of captivated by Indian dance, uh, Bharatnatyam, which, uh, you know, is sort of southern Indian dance form. And um, that eventually ended up, uh, was, was one of the sort of elements that kind of came into the movie that wasn't in the original book. Uh, you know, we just had a scene and a little sort of subplot with uh, Pai and, and his girlfriend who's a dancer. And so, so I think that, that actually kind of helped give a bit of a lift to, uh, to the character. Um, uh, music in that case was, was very important to, to get into another culture, a good way of doing that. We have time for one or two more. We'll get right here, this person here, microphone. Yeah, the glasses, yeah. Right. Hi, I just had a quick question um, to expand a little bit more, if you would, on uh, technical nuts and bolts of ass-in-the-seat writing process, like <laughs> every morning, four hours, with tea, without tea, uh, coffee shop, you know, just what works in terms of like getting the momentum and then how much do you have to accomplish on a daily basis and then interruptions and just navigating all that to get from beginning to end of the script. <laughs> this is what they really want to hear. Okay, so uh, <laughs> for me, so I just, I, had a, I have a four-year-old, so it's a sort of pre-hopper and post-hopper answer to that question. Mm -hmm. So pre-child, lots of caffeine. I have so much doubt about what I'm doing. Caffeine is not just to get my brain going, but my sense of hope, <laughs> <laughs> which is my to biggest problem, really, sustaining. Totally the, agree with that. <laughs> the suspension of my own disbelief, right? I have, that's what I got to do. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm like a, a worker dog I, all day, nine to six. And God knows how productive you're gonna be, but you're, you're trying the whole time. And I, and I went to art school, and there's that kind of studio practice thing, which I think I just have, you know, so the nine to six. Now it's like 10 to three, right? Because preschool, I gotta pick them up. So it's like there. And I don't do anything at night, and um, um, I'm a little self-punishing, I would say. I just, I'd, sometimes I, the best thing I had to do is take a break because I'm just digging myself into a hole where I'm just convincing myself it's not going to work, and I'm very convincing, you know. <laughs> so a walk, you know. I mean, I have children too, so I, I but um, so when they were littler, it was all about the few hours that I had when I 
could write, and now that, that time has expanded. But I find that there are phases. Like there's a phase where you're wandering around and everything seems to apply to your movie, like everything. <laughs> everything you look at seems so relevant and you're gonna use it. Um, then you start to refine, you know, you refine and refine and then you start to write, but I find that there's like resistance. It's as if I'm pushing against a buffer, a wind buffer or something. Then comes the time where it's like kind of like throwing up, like you have to. <laughs> and then I can't stop writing and I wake up at five o'clock in the morning and I can't sleep and I have to write. And there's nothing, like I would physically, I don't know what would happen if somebody tied my hands down, I would die, I think. And so then, and then comes this, and then comes a moment where you've done a draft or a version and then you have an aversion to the thing, to the version, <laughs> you know, of like you can't look at it anymore and all you wanna do is anything else. And then you have to get a kind of, then you look at it again and you think, I think I see a way in again and I'll reread it and you think, oh, this is awful. And you see all the ways in which it's awful. But it is, it's like hope and despair, hope and despair, hope and despair. Then you start to open it up and talk to people about it and get perspective. And once you do that, it's very vulnerable and terrifying, but that is like a big moment because I think you have your trusted readers, at least I do. You know, and then and then you go back in and you start to work, and it's just that back and forth. I mean, I do a lot of drafts. I've, the most I've done is 33 drafts of a, of a movie, but um, you know, it, it, some some people are much more. I mean, I I I think as time has gone on, I'm a little bit less like that. Like I'm a little bit more confident to make make like four drafts like a normal person. But <laughs> oh, that was really well described. Yes. <laughs> Guess there's not much to add to that. Um, I, I definitely, yeah, caffeine is, is great. Um, one thing that I one thing that I do also uh, is I kind of try to organize my distractions. So I'll have like two piles of books, you know, near my desk. One pile is is books that have everything to do with this script that I'm working on. So you know, military memoirs and, and a, you know Iraq War books, you know. Uh, fiction, you know, even the Red Badge of Courage, fiction about battles, and so on. And then the other is is a pile of books that has nothing to do. So, uh, you know, uh, like a 19th century French novel or poetry or God knows what. And I find that it's nice to sort of reach for either one or the other when you're getting distracted and just have that ready. So, uh, you know, so either either you're reading something that, you know, might get you juiced up about your uh, and inspire you about the script. Or at least, or if you're reading something that has nothing to do with the script, at least you're not like surfing the internet or watching cat videos or whatever. So <laughs> that helps. That's right. I, I did a, I did one of these last week with Patrick Ness. He just did this movie, Monster Calls, that's opening in a couple of months, and he's got this thing which I think is I think it's also Graham Greene had this too, which was a thousand words a day. Oh yeah, yeah. Just a thousand, and when you're done, that's it. You're done. Yeah, and I think Graham Greene didn't he even like sort of stop in mid sentence? Yeah, or is that, that he would. He supposedly myth, he would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, the neighbors are complaining about the noise, um, and so we have to wrap this up. I wish we could go longer, but we cannot. Thank you all for coming. Uh, thank you to our guests, and yes. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. 
Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.